Thanks for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. If you're in D.C., we'd love for you to come and join us and become a part of the church family. If you're outside of D.C., we'd love for you to find a church family to get plugged into and invest your life in where you can be held accountable and they can care for you. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill Church, you can give online at redemptionhilldc.org. Father, we come to you today in need of your spirit and your word. Uh, we come locked internally in, in a perpetual tension and experiencing the tension that exists inside of our own hearts and souls, but then also gets extended into relationships and, and life around us and the world around us. And we, we pray today that you would help us, that you would bring hope, that you would expose us where we need to be exposed Ultimately, that you would speak to us through your word and give us ears to hear. And so we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. A few years ago, I went through what was um, probably, not probably, without, a, without question, the hardest season of my life in ministry, the hardest season of my work in ministry. Um, some of you were around Redemption Hill at the time, and so it's not foreign to you, um, but it was a season of intense, intense relational conflict in some of our leadership community. Um, it, was a, it was devastating and still has some lingering effects because when a breakdown like that happens in relationships, and it causes you to question everything, and I went through a season of questioning my calling and my work here and my qualification. And I felt like I was stuck vacillating between, throughout that season, um, a, a tension internally of, of this, like a sliding scale of wanting to, at points, list my own credentials and say like, hey, you guys have to stop, or this has to stop. And listen, here's the reasons. Here's my qualifications for ministry. Here's the things that I've done and the things I've achieved and, and what I know, and just to be able to out-argue somebody. And then on the other hand, feeling classic imposter syndrome. Have you ever felt that? Where you, you feel like you... You're, you have the, a fear internally, even, and usually this happens in times when we actually ha have success and things are going well for us, and you, maybe you get a job that you want, and then you step into the job, and you're like, they don't know that I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> and you feel this, this pressure of maybe you're going to get exposed, and people are going to realize exactly how much of a fraud you are, and, and how scared you are, and how little control you have. And, and so I can remember in that season just going back and forth between wanting to list my credentials and, and respond with arrogance, and then on the other side, wondering, like, maybe this is it. I've been exposed, and I'm a fraud. And I think in this, within this, too, we all live on a perpetual sliding scale. Paul Miller describes this as boasting and shame scale. That, that most of us live in this tension, that, that we want to move up the scale toward being able to be proud and, and have something to boast in and something, to be, something that we're working toward. And so we attach ourselves to all kinds of things. It could be that we attach ourselves to our, our credentials and our successes and our, you know, it, it could be anything. Credentials could be in like school, where you went to school and what subjects you studied and what your GPA was or what professors or mentors you're going to name drop on people. It could be career credentials of, of, you know, this is what you've achieved and where you work and who you've worked under. Have you ever had that happen in D.C.? <laughs> where do you work? Oh, I work for this congressman. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> 
or it could be relational credentials, who you know and how long you've known them. And, and so we, we attach ourselves to people. In, in Christian circles, it gets really bizarre because we do this with like theologians and celebrity pastors. We'll, we'll say, well, I listen to so-and-so's podcast, as if that's going to move us up a scale somehow. And, and then on the other hand, it can be devastating to be moved down that scale, to be exposed. And, and we know this, when, whether it's explicit or implicit, when people shame us, when, when, we are, when we've either done something less than human or been treated as less than human, and as someone has said, other people know about it. And so this happens in subtle ways. When you're in a conversation with somebody, and you, you felt this, right? When you're in the conversation, you feel like you're, you're trying to form an intimate connection with somebody, and you're exposing something in your own heart, and then something subtle happens because their phone buzzes on the table, and they go like this. Like that, that's shaming, because you know that they're distracted and interested more in hanging out with somebody that's not in the room than with you while you sit across from them or Apple Watches, where you can see it lighting up, and people are always doing this, and they're not checking the time. They have access to all of human knowledge on their wrist. It's like James Bond and Star Trek combined. <laughs> and so we feel this. When, when uh, a subtle dismissal of our ideas or, <clears throat> or comments or perspectives, and we can feel Exposed, And so we're in this tension all the time. Today, we see an example of how the Apostle Paul navigated some of this tension. We're in Acts chapter 18. If you have a Bible, you can open it up with me to Acts 18. It'll also be on the screens. And in this passage, we see Paul come to Corinth. Now, last week, we saw him in Athens. And so the last couple of weeks, we saw him at first in Thessalonica and Berea. And our author, Dr. Luke, showed us how he did ministry in the synagogues into the Jewish people in those cities. Last week, he was in Athens, the wisest city in the known world. And he, there, we saw how he did ministry and the, how he preached the gospel in the marketplace. And today, we come to Corinth. And Corinth, this, this church ended up, we have two letters that were preserved for us that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. He loved the people of Corinth. He stayed there, we'll see, he stayed there for a year and a half planting the church in Corinth. So up to this point, this is by far the longest he's stayed in any city. Um, but we'll see that that wasn't easy, but he made the choice to stay there. Um, and, and so, um, and, and Corinth was an important city. He, we've seen this, that he hits major cities along major trade routes. And so God has opened doors for Paul in Philippi, a leading city, in Thessalonica, which was a capital of its province, in Athens, a major city, now in Corinth. Corinth, though, was different than Athens because Corinth was a trade city. It sat in an isthmus, and now there's a canal that goes through it, but at the time there wasn't. It was, it was a unique location because there was an overland pass. There, was, there were major Roman roads that ran north and south, um, through this region, and then there, this was a, a short isthmus that was between the Adriatic and Aegean seas. And so at the time that Paul was there, they, were, they actually took trading ships and rolled them across logs to get across the isthmus to avoid a treacherous sailing journey around the bottom of Macedonia, modern-day Greece. Um, and so it, within that, there was major trade coming in. It was a prosperous, cosmopolitan city. It was a city that was accustomed to visitors. And it was a city that was obsessed with personal rights. 
It was a pagan city that had temples to all kinds of gods and was known particularly for a temple to Aphrodite, um, the goddess of love. And so there was, it was also a city of sexual immorality that even the Romans recognized that way. In, in the Roman Empire at this time, there was actually a, 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 an idiom that was used that they would refer to people as a Corinthian girl, and that meant a prostitute. And so this, also, this is also a city that had the Isthmian Games, which were second only to the Olympic Games, um, but were in the same vein. And so it was games that would be competed in, and they would, they would be games of races and wrestling and discus and javelin throwing and boxing, and all of it was done in the nude, which the Romans also despised. And so this was a place that even Rome looked at and went, oh boy, this, this is a place that of trade with sailors coming in and out of port that was known for its immorality. And so this is what happens as Paul arrives in Corinth. Acts 18. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had, ha- had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade the Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads, I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word among them. But when Gallio was a preconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God, a God contrary to the law. When Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have, no reason, to, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names of your own law, see to it yourselves. I refused to be a judge of those things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila. At Centria, he had his hair cut, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they had asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined, but on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus, and when he had landed in Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch, and after spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And so Luke, our author, gives us four snapshots of the ministry, of the year and a half of ministry that Paul did in the city of Corinth. And this closes out his second missionary journey. 
And so this is the, he, we've watched him go through all the way through modern-day Turkey, come across and go through Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Corinth. Now he, this is his journey back to Antioch, his, where he had his sending church. And this closes the second missionary journey, but there's some important things that happen here. In these four short scenes, we see a ministry in the synagogues and, and the connection to Priscilla and Aquila, who are an important couple that continue to come up throughout the New Testament. We see Paul's turn to the Gentiles second as, as he turns into the house of Titius Justice next door to the synagogue, which can you imagine being the synagogue rulers that had thrown him out at that point? And the dude sets up shop next door. And so he stays there and he gets a vision from God. That's this, the third scene. And then we see this open opposition before the proconsul Gallio in, in that city of Corinth. And so those are the four scenes. And Paul stayed for many days. He was there for a year and a half before he got home. Um, I, every time I come back to this passage, I'm reminded that in seminary, this is my own shame that I'll expose, there was a quiz that I had to take on the, on the Corinthian correspondence, uh, on the book of Acts that we were moving through very quickly. And one of the questions was, where did Paul get his hair cut? And I didn't get it right. And so I will never forget that it was at Centria um, <laughs> here in Acts chapter 18. All right, so what we see in the Apostle Paul here is we see in his ministry in Corinth the glory of self-sacrifice. And in general, to the Corinthian church. Again, we have two letters that were preserved that were written to the church in Corinth, and there were at least three, I would argue four or even more letters that were written to that church ultimately because he, Paul refers to prior letters in the letters that he wrote. He also says in those letters that they were tearful letters, and he's trying to correct some misunderstandings from them, so I'm not surprised that the church at Corinth didn't preserve them all. And because some of them, he came at, at them pretty hard with correctives. But we have two letters, and so we see in those letters, it exposes even more of what he did and didn't do, how he approached things while he was in Corinth. And so we see the glory of self-sacrifice. First, that Paul chose to connect with and live with and work with the lowest class in the city. Now, we might not catch that from the word tent maker. Um, if, you know, for most of you, that might not mean anything. It just sounds like, okay, he worked a trade. For some of you that have been around churches for a long time, this has become a code word um, for a missionary that moves to a place and sets up a business rather than doing strictly Christian work. And so they might go in and, like, run a coffee shop as an inroad to Christian ministry. So people call that tent-making ministry now. And that's lifted up as this is a great way to do missions. So for you, that word might not have negative connotations either. In Paul's time, people would have understood that that was negative. It meant he worked with leather. Almost certainly he was a, a tanner of leather. And that's significant because, in a couple of ways, on the Jewish side, that's significant because rabbis were encouraged to have a, a second trade to support themselves. But there's some possibility, according to some scholars, that working with animal hides may have risked making Paul unclean ceremonially. On the Greek side, the Greeks despised manual labor. They, this was the lowest class, and tent makers in particular. And so it was, it, they were, tent making was done by petty craftsmen and slaves in this culture. Um, for the Greeks and Romans, that kind of work was beneath Paul's level of learning and sophistication. The Roman order Cicero actually referred to tent makers and craftsmen as petty shopkeepers and all of the filth of the cities and said that their work was degrading and that the very wages of these laborers are the badges of their slavery. 
And so that was the perspective on the work that Paul chose to do. But I don't think this was by accident. I don't think it's because Paul got there and, and, and was like, oh gosh, I don't have any money today. I'm going to go and take on this trade. He went with Priscilla and Aquila, but I do believe that this was an intentional move by the Apostle Paul. Because Corinth as a city was infused with an obsession with status. Back to that idea of a boasting and shame scale, it was a city that was obsessed with finding ways to climb that ladder of building up our own credentials and pride. And so the idea that Paul here could have attached himself to a patron, and this was common in Corinth. We, there's actually inscriptions that we have of people who were patrons, and patrons would, would be benefactors that would, would come alongside and, and grab teachers and philosophers and people to have around them to teach them. They would pay them very well. It would bring status for the teacher and increase the status of the patron. And so it was, kind, it was an arrangement that would work for both of them. Paul, when he got to Corinth, said, no way. I'm going to work with leather. And he lowered himself as opposed to finding a wealthy patron, and he deliberately made this choice. We know that because in 1 Corinthians 9, he says that. He talks about the rights he could have had as an apostle and that it's good for churches to take care of their pastors and teachers and not to muzzle the ox while it treads the grain. And, and if teachers sow spiritual things among you, it's not too much to reap material things from you. And so he makes a big defense for saying teachers deserve to be taken care of, and your pastors deserve to be taken care of, but then he also says, nevertheless, we've not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle um, in, in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded those who proclaim the gospel that they should get their living by the gospel... But Paul says, I've not made any use of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure such provision. He says, I would rather die than anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. Paul is saying he went to Corinth and deliberately chose not to take money from them. Not because he didn't have the right to, but it was a deliberate choice. And we see in the, in the letters to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11, we have a portrait of the classism that existed in that church. And I believe that what Paul was doing was that he was undercutting the culture of that city, deliberately choosing a countercultural posture so that the culture of the city would not infuse the church at Corinth. He rejected prestige and took on the foolishness of the gospel. He says this earlier on in the, in the letter, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, When I came to you, brothers, I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the spirit and power. Why? Why did Paul decide to take that posture in Corinth? so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Earlier on in, in chapter 1, he explained the, the division, he was talking about the divisions in that church and, and the reality of the good news of who God is and what he's done, and this is the, the gospel we proclaim. And he said, he said that it doesn't make sense in the eyes of this world and certainly in the eyes of the city that he was preaching. And he said, where is the one who is wise 
Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world didn't know God through wisdom, he's saying we, we couldn't have figured this out on our own. And so it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. And he exposes what he experienced in Corinth. Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to Jews, and it's folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And Paul then turns this toward the church, and I love this. He's saying, I deliberately chose that posture to be foolish and, and to not come with words of wisdom and to come in weakness and fear so that the power of God would be on display. And then he corrects the Corinthian church and says, by the way, consider your own calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. He's saying, you need to, need to realize your place on that boasting and shame scale. You're not as hot as you think. Not many of you are powerful. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord." See, Paul knew the glory of self-sacrifice and that he could have stepped into Corinth and had greater prestige and greater, greater income and greater influence and opportunities are the terms that I think we would use on that. And instead deliberately chose to take a lower place so that the power of God might be on display and so that the faith of the people in Corinth wouldn't be contingent on him, but contingent only on the work of God in them. And this has continued. It wasn't just how Paul started. He then stayed in the face of opposition. And so he's teaching in the synagogues, and the Jewish people reacted and turned him out. And, they, and we've seen this everywhere he goes. And so he shakes out his garments, and he, but he stayed in the face of opposition. A lot of other cities that we've seen Paul go through, there were points where, I mean, points where he decided to leave, other points where he may not have decided to leave, but he was chased out of Thessalonica by a riot. When he got to Berea, the people from Thessalonica followed him and rioted there. If you remember way back earlier on in his first missionary journey, he got dragged outside of a city and beaten and left for dead, beaten with rocks. And the next day he got up and went back into the city and kept going. And so we've seen his resilience, but here we see it in a different way because he stays. He shakes out his robes, says, your blood's on your own heads, I'm innocent. But he turns to the Gentiles and comes and finds a man's house. Titius Justice provides a place for his ministry to continue. Later on, they escalate the attacks, but even after that, Paul stayed. And in staying, we see self-sacrifice as well. Again, I think for many of us, we go with an idea of like, well, when God closes one door, he opens another and if I was dragged in front of D.C.'s city council or some kind of ruling body and they were demanding that I stop and it turned into this big scene, I might say, ah, I might go to a different city. <laughs> Paul stays, and in that shows us, again, a willingness for self-sacrifice. And he was also silent in the face of attack. He didn't, he didn't when he was dragged to Galileo. He wasn't offering a defense right away. Now, it does say that, that Paul is about to open his mouth, and then God intervenes, and Galileo does instead. 
But it was Gallio who spoke up in his defense. His church, the glory of self-sacrifice is that it puts us in an openly dependent position on God to provide, on God to move, on God to work, and God to bring growth to the things that we set our hands to. And I think it, it may be easy for us to agree with what Paul wrote to the Corinthian church and say, yeah, the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom. The, the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. And we see that all the way through Scripture, that story after story after story shows that God works and uses the least likely of people over and over again. And we can agree with that and understand that cognitively. But the question is, do we actually believe that in a way that we're willing to stake our own lives on it? Are we willing to live self-sacrificially, believing that that in our own foolishness, God's wisdom might show up? Are we willing to live in the midst of our own weakness and appear not as strong, believing that in our weakness, the strength of God may be at work? See, most of us have imbibed a Christian spirituality that whether we think this openly or not, we live our lives functionally as if the greatest achievement of our pursuit of spirituality would be for us to reach a point where we no longer need to be dependent on God, where we're not reliant on Christ anymore where our lives are figured out, where we don't have struggles anymore. Where, and so this shows up in the way that we approach the nagging sin issues in our lives and that they come up again and again and again and we, we think, if I could just get past this, then I'd, it'd be smooth sailing. We're saying, if I could just get to a point where I don't have to be dependent on Christ, it would be easier for me. This is why if we, we think if God just provided a little bit more income, a little bit more stability in housing, a little bit better job, a little bit more security in relationship, a little bit better relationship when you have a, a long-term relationship, if, they, if I could just get to this point, everything would be fine because I would no longer be placed into a position of dependence. It's a spirituality that seeks to be wise and strong, but there's no place in the New Testament that we see evidence that we should be less dependent on Christ. Jesus was the most dependent person who ever lived. He was reliant on the Spirit of God to lead him. He was reliant on a relationship with his Father and and times to escape, to rest in that relationship. And he was in desperation so that even the night before his death, we see him pleading and crying out to God with such intensity that sweat was falling like drops of blood. But he also was someone who knew what it was to live in self-sacrifice. Not selflessness, but self-sacrifice. Francis Schaeffer said that we should consciously take the lowest place until the Lord himself extrudes us to a greater one. I love that language of being extruded. Think of like a pasta press pushing the dough through the mold. And he says there's two reasons. Because it's easier to be quiet before the face of the Lord in a lower place And second, if we take hold of power egotistically, we're instantly disqualified for Christian leadership. And so within that, there's a glory to self-sacrifice. And so it puts Paul in a position where we see the second thing today is that God provides. God provides for him. There's There's four scenes, and each of those scenes we see a different level of provision that God gives because Paul was in a position where he where he needed God to step in and bring provision for him. So first he provides friends and co laborers. 
Remember, Paul was, was told to leave Berea. He was with his friends Silas and Timothy, and they said, you need to leave here so we can stay because they, everyone is angry with Paul. So they sent him on to Athens. He was in Athens alone. Now in Corinth, at least on the front end, he's alone. And I think here we'd expect that Silas and Timothy would have met up with him in Athens, and they do. Um, they met, we read in 1 Thessalonians 3 that they had met him in Athens, but they went back again up into Macedonia. And so, um, and so they had met him there, but now um, that he was alone again, and so he gets to Corinth, and God provided for him Aquila and Priscilla. And, and these two ended up being close friends and co-laborers with Paul for a long time. Now, the story here that Luke captures for us actually lines up with history. It says that they had come from Italy recently because Claudius, the emperor, had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went with, and, and so Paul went with them and then stayed with them and worked alongside them. We know that Claudius, the emperor, actually expelled all of the Jews from Rome in AD 49. And so he expelled them because there was conflict within them that was heated in Rome, um, and they were expelled because there was a, this disturbance among the Jewish people in Rome over a, a person called Crestus in Latin. The gospel had reached Rome. It was causing problems in Rome without the Apostle Paul there, because remember, we've seen throughout Acts that it's the word of the Lord that advances and increases, and we're just getting one story of it. And so that was, a, and so because of that, um, this emperor Claudius expelled all the Jews. So these two, Aquila and Priscilla, had been in Rome. They almost certainly knew about Jesus, and they, they were a timely and welcome encouragement to Paul in his ministry. Later on, later in this chapter, next week, we'll see that they ended up instructing a young, a young upstart pastor named Apollos, who was gaining acclaim and was a passionate preacher of the gospel, but he had some things that were a little off. And so these two end up sitting him down and correcting some of his theology investing into him. And so God provided Paul friends and co-laborers. Later on we, in this text, we also see that Silas and Timothy return, and, and they come in their encouragement to Paul. And Paul wrote later in, in his second letter to the Corinthians about a time when, when he was alone and Titus came to him. And in 2 Corinthians 7, he says, Titus came to me, and, and it was an encouragement to him, and he brought comfort, and, and God comforted him through the friendship and coming of his friend Titus. And so Paul had co-laborers and friends in every place he went, and God provided them for him along the way. We need to hear this for a couple of reasons. First of all, because we are terrible at friendship. I don't think most of us know how to be friends with people in adulthood. Childhood friendship is different. And, and then as you, as you progress through childhood and you get into college, college is a weird bubble, right? Where if, when you get to college, everybody is the exact same life stage. Everybody has lots of time and lives their lives like Ninja Turtles. <laughs> Usually focus level and passions are very, very similar. And so then people leave college and I think you get exposed to like the rest of life and realize that in adulthood things change. People have full-time jobs and then when, as some people get married and have families, that changes availability. And for some of you who are single, you've experienced the pain of getting older and experiencing that, that people's time and availability changes. And, and so un, we're uncertain of how to be friends. And I think we often look at friendship as like, what, are we, what do we need to do to make sure we achieve good things in this friendship? But we have people that we see in our lives that we'd love to be friends with, other people that would love to be friends with us sometimes that we're not quite so sure about. It's hard to find a that chemistry of close friendship and intimacy in relationship. And yet, 
from the beginning, God recognized it's not good for us to be alone. And so we're, we have within our souls this crying out and a desire for friendship. I don't think we often enough realize how dependent we are on God's orchestration of the friendships we have in our lives. If we could learn to rest in that, it might actually free us to, to be more, more self-sacrificial in our friendships. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Four Loves, talks about friendship as the, the highest of the loves, the most intense of the four loves. Out of, out of sexual love, eros, out of friendship, or philos, out of charity. Um, and so he says, in friendship, we think we've chosen our peers. In reality, a few years difference to the dates of our births, a few more miles between certain houses, the choice of one university instead of another, a posting to different regiments, the accident of a topic being raised or not raised at a first meeting, any of these chances might have kept us apart. But for a Christian, strictly speaking, um, there, are no there are no chances. A secret master of ceremonies has been at work. And Christ, who said to the disciples, ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, can truly say to every group of Christian friends, you have not chosen one another, but I have chosen you for one another. The friendship is not a reward for our discrimination and good taste in finding one another out. You hear that? Friendship is not a reward for our discrimination and good taste in finding one another out. It is the instrument by which God reveals to each the beauties of the others. There, they are no greater beauties than the beauties of a thousand other men. By friendship, God opens our eyes to them. They are like all beauties derived from him and then in a good friendship increased by him through the friendship itself so that it is his instrument for creating as well as revealing. At this feast, it is he who has spread the board, and it is he who has chosen the guests. It is he, who we may dare hope, who sometimes does and always should preside, and let us not reckon without our host. When you have friends and deep friendships that come in around you, recognize that this is a gift of God to you not because you're such a great person to be a friend with. And so Paul had friends and co-laborers provided by God. Second, God provided a means for ministry. Silas and Timothy arrive and rejoin him. We read in verse 5, And so when they arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And so we have a couple of things that are shown here. They show up. Paul, Silas and Timothy had been sent away from Paul after they had joined him in Athens. We learn later that the church in Philippi provided financially for Paul and his ministry. They were the ones supporting his mission's work. And so there's a strong possibility here that when they arrive in Corinth, they brought with them the financial support of the Philippian church. And that's why we see Paul's occupation change. He goes from being a tent maker and teaching on the, on the Sabbath days to now Paul was occupied with the word. And so God provided means for ministry here. And Paul, in refusing to take money from the Corinthian church, intentionally lowered himself and took on suffering and, and hardship and status that he didn't have to. But in that, then we see God providing for him. And then he opens up access to a new ministry center right next door to where he'd been kicked out. 
in this house of Titius Justice, right next door to the synagogue. Paul had nothing when he arrived in Corinth, and he took nothing from the Corinthians on principle, and in so doing, he was completely dependent on God's provision. This is, again, a good reminder for us because it is good to be wise and to steward God's provision for us well, his material provision. And Paul gives clear teaching about that to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. But it's also true that we can find our comfort and hope in material goods and forget that it's God who provides all things. And we need this reminder as a church and individuals that if we, as we experience the glory of self-sacrifice, we can trust that God will provide friends and co-laborers. He'll provide means for ministry. Third, he'll provide assurance of his presence. I think verses 9 and 10 are the center point of this text. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, don't be afraid. It tells us that Paul was experiencing fear. Even the great apostle, the resilient apostle, experienced fear. He said, don't be afraid. But go on speaking and don't be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And so Paul stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. This is the center point. What a promise from Jesus saying, I am with you. Don't be afraid of anything. Keep on speaking. Keep on showing that the Christ is Jesus. Keep on showing the power of the resurrection of Jesus. Keep on opening your mouth to do this and trust that the call here is for Paul to trust that his life is held in God's hands, that that Christ himself is with him and that the Spirit of God will, will tell him what he needs to say. And all of these are promises that we can rest in in Christ. He promised, in, as he commissioned his, his followers to go and make disciples, he said, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He's, he, Christ has promised us that, that he is with us, that our lives are held in his hand, and that the Spirit of God will tell us what we need to say wherever we are called by God to be. We just saw last week in Athens, Paul's statements that, that God himself has determined the allotted periods and boundaries of our dwelling place so that we might seek God and feel our way toward him and find him because he's not far from any one of us. And so imagine how our lives would be reshaped if we actually believed that God will provide for us, that he'll provide co-laborers, that he'll provide means for ministry, and that he'll provide an assurance of his presence and forth protection. It's likely that Paul wouldn't have guessed that Gallio, the proconsul of Achaia, would turn out to be the one who protected him. This has not been his experience. He gets dragged in front of the courts, he's about to open his mouth, and Gallio intervenes. And it's a huge moment for Christianity because his pronouncement is an official ruling that Christianity is a viable religious belief in that city. And it's also a statement that the state was not going to litigate a religious dispute. You see, Jesus is building his kingdom. He's building his church. And as his kingdom advances, the gates of hell won't prevail against it. It doesn't mean it'll be easy. It wasn't easy for Paul, but it does mean that we can live our lives with greater boldness. So church, we've used these in the past, but I, I've made them, I want to make them available to you today. I have these little cards. They're at the four communion stations. You can grab one today. On one side, it has verses 9 and 10. And we can claim this as a promise for for us as well. Don't be afraid, but go on speaking, and don't be silent, for I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. I believe there are many people in our city who are God's people, even if they don't know it yet. 
So on one side is that verse as a reminder to you. On the other side, there's just one line, and it's generally blank. I would love, and I challenge you, especially if you're part of the church, even if you're not, you can grab one of these today. If you're a member of the church, please take one of these cards and write down someone's name on it as a commitment that you're going to pray for this person who God has placed in your life that they might seek him, as a commitment that you're going to find an opportunity to open your mouth and speak the beauty of the gospel to that person with the hope that they might experience life in Christ. So these are available to you. You can take multiples, or you can write down more than one name on a card, too, because we believe that God has many in this city who are his people. So please take one of those today. All right, finally, with a few moments we have left, we also, so we, we see God's provision, we see the glory of self-sacrifice, but in all of this, we need to remember also the foundation of the gospel. We need to remember the, the foundation of all of this. And Paul talks about this in his letter to the Corinthian church. And in 1 Corinthians 3, he talks that there's division, there were divisions in this church over certain leaders. And, and Paul's reminding him, no, we're just servants. He said, I planted, but, and Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field. And then he switches his metaphor from agricultural to, to architectural. He says that you're also God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building on it. Let each one take care how he builds on it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And he goes on to give a, st- a stern warning about building a foundation other than the good news of who God is and what he has done in Christ. Now, this is important because... From beginning to end, in the letter he wrote to, letters he wrote to the Corinthian church, Paul returns to the gospel. He returns to the reality of who God is, the reality of what he's done in Jesus, and that God is the one at work. That it is the gospel of Christ that, that he was killed in our place for our sin, for our redemption, that he was raised from death to life. This is the foundation of everything he comes back to again and again and again in the Corinthian correspondence. And that's important to us because when you look at and read between the lines on what was going on in Corinth, it's amazing that Paul would have any hope that the gospel could work in that place. Read the letters sometime. In this church, just in 1 Corinthians alone, we see that they were divided over leaders and teachers. They were saying, they had people saying, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, that's Peter, or I follow Christ. And do you know what that is? That's the boasting and shame scale. Within the church, it's the equivalent today of us naming celebrity pastors and saying, this is the one that I follow, and we're hitching ourselves to them with the hope that hitching ourselves to their theology is going to lift us up in the eyes of other people. And that was happening in Corinth. They were dividing over leaders and teachers. We see in chapter 5 that they had a guy in their church who was sleeping with his dad's wife, and they didn't care And Paul wrote to them, don't you know that even the pagans see that this is wrong? And yet you're proud in your church? It doesn't stop there. People were sleeping with temple prostitutes. He had to correct that problem in 1 Corinthians 6. Not just sexual ethic and people in monogamous committed relationships sleeping with temple prostitutes. 
They, they had questions about marriage, and people were, I think there's connotation in 1 Corinthians 7 that people were saying, we need to be abstinent and not marry, and then they were also sleeping with each other, and Paul's saying, would you please just get married, because it's better for you to get married than to burn with passion, is the way our translations soften it. People were getting drunk at communion, for real. In chapter 11, he had to correct that people were drinking all of the communion wine before the rest of the church even showed up for worship. And Paul said, you've got to stop getting drunk on communion wine. <laughs> he didn't say stop using wine, but he said it involved everybody in the feast. And this was classism in Corinth. It's almost certain that the wealthier people could get off work earlier and come sooner, and so they were imbibing and enjoying all of it and cutting others outside of the fellowship of the Lord's table. They were still going to idols' temples and participating in ritualistic feasts devoted to false gods. In 1 Corinthians 8, Paul starts with a softened argument about meat bought in the marketplace. By the time you get to chapter 10, he says you cannot share in the Lord's table and take communion and share in the feast of an idol's temple because you're joining yourself to false gods and to Christ, and Christ is jealous for you. We had people dividing over spiritual gifts, and the place had gone crazy about spiritual gifts. And so in chapters 12 to 14, we have the clearest teaching in the New Testament about how spiritual gifts are supposed to be exercised. And he says, would you stop acting like you're superior to others because of the gifts God has given you and restrict your personal use of the gifts? Because otherwise, when people come into your public gatherings, they're going to think you're crazy. He says, they're going to think you're out of your minds. There, when we get to, there's questions about, then it comes down to the core of it. And, and, and in 2 Corinthians, there's all kinds of questions about Paul's authority and his apostleship. But, but in 1 Corinthians, it's amazing the point that he has to get to, that in chapter 15, it becomes clear that in the church in Corinth, there are people who are disputing the reality of the possibility of resurrection from death. And so in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul corrects that as well. But what I want you to see is that what he corrects it with, that from start to finish, Paul is not just interested in behavior modification for this church. He's not just saying, hey, could you stop sleeping with your dad's wife and prostitutes and getting drunk on communion so that you look better? He's saying there was a foundation laid here. The foundation that was laid was the gospel of Jesus Christ. And whatever gets built on that foundation will be exposed in the end by fire, whether it was wood, hair, straw, or whether it was gold and precious stones. There's a foundation laid in the church of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and at the end he returns to that and says, listen, what I delivered to you as of first importance, I also received this is the good news of the gospel. This is the foundation for true faith. This is the foundation for seeing God's provision for us, the ultimate provision that we needed, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the 12, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. What Paul is doing there is he's saying, this is the foundation of our faith. This is the foundation of the church. And he's listing eyewitnesses as an invitation to say, go and ask them. 
Peter saw Jesus risen with his own eyes. The 12 saw him risen with his own eyes. More than 500 at one time, most of whom are still alive. He's saying, go find them and ask them. And he's saying, by the way, he also appeared to James and then to me personally. And so he goes on to say, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection? If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith is in vain. And we are even found to be misrepresenting God. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. But if in fact Christ has been raised, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also resurrection of the dead. As in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own turn. Christ the first fruits, it is coming, and then those who belong to him. And so in the midst of all of the chaos of the Corinthian church that came later, Paul returns to this foundation and reminds them, this is our hope. It's not in our morality. It's not in our ability to slide ourselves up that boasting and shame scale. It's not in our, in, in our theology. It's not in the gifts that we have been given by God that we express in our lives. What Paul was calling the Corinthians to is to follow him, as he said in chapter 9, in this, remember this, this city that knew the Isthmian games, don't you know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you might obtain it. Even every athlete exercises self-control in all things, and they do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we an imperishable one. So I don't run aimlessly, I don't box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keeping it under control, lest after, I preach, after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. This gets used by every Christian athlete ever. <laughs> but he's not talking about physical training. Paul is saying that he's saying that he has consistently chosen to take the lower place. He has willingly lived out self-sacrifice and rejected opportunities to elevate himself and that in that, God has provided for him. He's provided friends and co-laborers. He's provided means for his ministry. He provided assurance of his presence and he provided his protection along the way. Let's live our lives for something greater than our own credentials, than our own boasting, our own status, our own elevation and the avoidance of shame. We can live our lives self-sacrificially, and in Christ we have the promise that it, the hard work we do to plant and water and cultivate, we can trust that God will give the growth. There's glory in self-sacrifice because God will provide, and we have a foundation in the gospel that we must never let go. Let's pray. Father, would you help us? Would you help us to be more dependent on you, to trust in your goodness, to let go of our need for affirmation from sources other than you? And would you provide for us? Would you, would you provide friends and means for ministry? And, and would you provide an assurance within us by the kiss of your spirit even in this moment? And Father, for those who are present who haven't turned to Christ and haven't found, have found the foundation for their lives in the rock-solid hope of the gospel, I pray now that even in the rest of our services we sing and pray and cry out to you together that your spirit would move in their hearts to draw them to you. And so we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.